0: Florence Wald received a Bachelor of Arts degree in Physiology and Sociology from Mount Holyoke College in 1938, and she immediately enrolled in the 30-month nursing program at Yale University. However, by the time Florence went to Yale University School of Nursing, there was beginning to be a shift in philosophy of care, where the primary focus was on the disease and not on the patient. This disease orientation was a result of the rapidly growing knowledge in medical science that was overshadowing everything else at the time. You are listening to Personhood, the story of Florence World and the Hospice Movement. This is episode two, the care of the terminal ill in 1940s and 50s. And I'm your host, Solabama. As the American lifestyle shifted into high gear after the Great Depression, dance and music styles did as well. The upbeat tempos of swing music seemed to match the mood of the country. As the economy boomed, the people danced. ¶¶ The dance music got louder and fun, world events got louder and dangerous. The Second World War had already started in September of 1939 in Europe. At first, the United States remained officially neutral in the conflict. Here's a report from the History Channel.
1: There are many among us who in the past closed their eyes to events abroad because they believed that what was taking place in Europe was none of our business. That we could maintain our physical safety by retiring within our continental boundaries. To those who would not admit the possibility of the approaching storm, the past weeks have meant the shattering of many illusions. With a third of Europe now under Nazi control, America still sits on the sidelines. Many believe the war to be Europe's problem. Recalling the horrors of World War I, the majority of Americans don't want to get involved in another European war. President Franklin Roosevelt attempts to convince them otherwise. On September 16, 1940, Roosevelt signs the Selective Training and Service Act. The first peacetime draft in American history. All able-bodied men between 21 and 30 must register for military service. Though Congress approves the bill, it is careful to call it a national defense measure.
0: The draftees may only be sent to defend American-held territories. Even if the draft was not popular, it helped the United States to be ready in case of an attack. It was not long after that that the Japanese Empire ended America's isolation from the war with a surprise attack. While Americans were going through their day, all of a sudden, all the media channels were interrupted. Those who were listening to the baseball game between the Dodgers and Giants over the radio were interrupted by this message. This broadcast brings you this important
1: bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on
0: Pearl Harbor. Japan had staged a surprise attack on American military installations in the Pacific. The most devastating strike came at Pearl Harbor. In a two-hour attack, Japanese warplanes sunk or damaged 18 warships and destroyed 164 aircrafts. Over 2,400 servicemen and civilians lost their lives. President Roosevelt knew that something had to be done. December 7, 1941,
1: a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Less than 24 hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt addressed a joint session of Congress, an impassioned oratorical display that demanded a declaration of war against Japan. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people, in their righteous might, We'll win through to absolute victory. Within an hour of the speech, Roosevelt had his declaration of war. The president's signature speeds our total defense, energies, and resources to all our
0: victory. As American soldiers marched on to war, the president acted as pastor-in-chief and led the entire country through this prayer. Almighty God,
1: our sons pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and cruel. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith, They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed. But we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph
0: and off America went to war. Despite of the fact that America was in the Second World War, the medical arena in the early 1940s was filled with scientific discovery and a growing faith in medical authority. The faith in medicine was even strengthened by the development of injectable penicillin. This new development showed promise in medical progress, Then there was the development of more anti-tuberculosis therapies that enabled the disease to be controlled. Not long after that, sanatoriums for tuberculosis patients were no longer necessary.
2: Barb Newton. As medicine progressed, death came to be discussed only in terms of its avoidance, and any other conversation on the topic, at least from the American Medical Association, was particularly non existent. Instead, articles regarding terminal diseases focused on symptoms and new treatment options, rather than outcomes of mortality rates. Despite acknowledgement by at least some specialties in the medical profession, that death was a part of patient care. The American Medical Association at that time was not willing to make this concession of inadequacy.
0: As a powerful collision representing the entirety of the medical profession, the American Medical Association was the medical authority of the time. And their refusal to acknowledge dying patients greatly influenced society's perception of terminal care. In the eyes of the medical profession, if it could not be visibly cured, it was not a medical concern, and discussion of such conditions was seen as counterproductive to medical efforts. To acknowledge dying was to admit that medicine had failed and that the authorities which the public had designed to the medical profession was not deserved. Here is hospice historian, Veronica Dress.
3: With the heavy focus on disease during that time, Florence was dismayed that nursing was lost in the treatment of the disease and she questioned if she had made a major career mistake. While still questioning her choice of career, she went on to work for the Visiting Nurse Service of New York. Initially, the Visiting Nurse Service of New York was patient-focused. That is what was attractive to Florence. However, after their reorganization, the Visiting Nurse Service of New York took on a physician-driven model of care that focused more on the disease rather than the patient. Florence found physicians were unprepared to accept her vision of care. She remained with the Visiting Nurse Service of New York for two years from 1941 to 1943, but left dissatisfied. For Florence, the art of nursing was being lost to the science of medicine. So she quit.
1: ain't I ain't working here no more. A woman done left and took all the reasons I was working for. You made a
0: Florence had not anticipated how nursing would be heavily influenced by the medical model that focused on the disease and symptom treatment rather than patient-focused model of care. She left the nursing profession in 1944. Around that time, the Second World War was raging, and it was a difficult emotional time. Florence wondered if her beliefs about life and medicine fit the times.
2: After that, Florence did the unthinkable and enlisted in the army. She felt an obligation to help the military men and women who were fighting the atrocities of Hitler. Ironically, Florence was assigned to a small maternity ward at the United States Military Academy at West Point. 18 months later, the war ended, and so did her military service.
3: During her eight-year sabbatical from nursing, Florence became a clinical research assistant at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital on a surgical metabolism unit. It was here that she met her husband to be, Henry Wald, one of Florence's research subjects who was in officers' candidate school. Florence and Henry dated three years before he proposed marriage to her in 1948. Henry had completed his military service and had graduated from the Cooper Union. For the advancement of science and art in New York City with a degree in engineering. Because Florence's father was dying, her mother had breast cancer, and her professional path was uncertain, she declined Henry's proposal, and there the relationship mutually ended. Gone is
1: the romance and broken the vow We used to be sweethearts before the Happy go lucky you He looks down from heaven, and what does he see? Happy, God
0: lucky you, and broken hearted me. In Florence's years as a researcher at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, the medical landscape was changing. In 1946, the Hill-Button Act was passed, and with it came the campaign to build more hospitals.
2: With the building of hundreds of hospitals around the country, due to the Hill-Burton Act, hospital care for the sick became the norm instead of home care. This led to a new turn of events because more people started dying in the hospitals instead of at home. While the establishment of many large hospitals by 1950 was a big accomplishment for the country, for the dying, it resulted in a difficult and painful journey.
3: Where once families gathered around the deathbed at home, dying patients now found themselves alone in ICUs tethered to machines. The denial of mortality also reinforced the most gruesome features of death and dying. Unable to face their own anxieties, doctors prolonged life long after the hope of recovery had ended and failed to communicate honestly with the dying. Families hid behind falsely cheerful demeanors or withdrew entirely thus heightening patient's sense of isolation. In addition, intensive care unit regulations at the time severely restricted the presence of relatives who wished to keep deathbed vigils.
0: Although there was plenty of space for the dying in those hospitals, the hospital administrators did not demand the delivery of adequate care for the dying. Within the medical staff, there was this attitude that death signaled a physician's failure. This led to terminally ill patients being largely ignored by the medical staff. Then came the 1950s. The 1950s were marked by the post-World War II boom. America had already cemented its status as the ultimate superpower. The economy was booming, and the fruits of this prosperity led to people being able to afford new cars and suburban houses. The middle class became stable, and of course, rock and roll music became a big thing. I'm all shook
1: up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. while well, my hands shake and my knees are weak I can't seem to stand on my own too faint Who
0: do you think of oh, when you Rock and roll music celebrated themes such as young love freedom and self discovery For Florence this meant pursuing a second master of science from Yale this time in psychiatric nursing.
2: Upon completing her psychiatric nursing master's degree from Yale University in 1956, Florence was invited to join the Rutgers University faculty. This opportunity was particularly appealing because Rutgers was beginning a master's program in psychiatric nursing. More importantly, she would have the privilege of working with Hildegard Peplau, For Florence, she was finally in the right spot at the right time.
0: Hildegard Pablo was a visionary nurse who was enhancing communication and creating the scientific foundation of the person-nurse relationship. Florence enjoyed working as her assistant, and she continued to develop her own skills and theories that would later influence her work in hospice care. In 1959, Florence officially became the fourth dean of Yale University School of Nursing.
3: Florence also had a major personal triumph as a result of being named dean. After a long 10 years, she reconnected with Henry Wald. As Henry was sitting in a coffee shop, the man next to him had a newspaper open to an article in picture announcing Florence's deanship. Henry had married for nearly a decade and, with two children named Shari and Joel, had recently lost his wife in a car accident. He couldn't believe he had found Florence for the second time in his life. In 1959, Florence, at 40, and Henry, at 35, met again and soon married. Florence was delighted to also have found two wonderful children, who were six and eight at the time, to complete a family.
0: Although there were no major changes in the 1950s regarding care for the terminally ill, a group of psychologists and psychiatrists began to openly talk about the subject of death and dying. In
2: 1956, psychologist Herman Feifel organized a symposium to address the concept of death in relation to behavior. Soon after that, articles began to emerge in both national and state medical journals urging physicians to restore dignity to the dying. A major way was to focus less on prolonging life and more on improving its quality.
0: In 1959, McGraw-Hill released a book, The Meaning of Death, which later went on to receive international acclaim and became a big inspiration for the modern hospice movement. The meaning of death finally called attention to the problem that had affected the medical profession for over half a century and demonstrated that by the second half of the 20th century, At least some medical professionals had come to acknowledge the denial of death as a detriment to quality care, and many agreed that U.S. physicians rarely devoted full attention to the care of the terminally ill. They often turned away from their patients after realizing that they could no longer cure them. Terminally ill patients felt isolated, abandoned by their doctors, unable to see family only during rigidly enforced hospital visiting hours in the 1940s and 50s the dying process was still not considered a part of medicine it continued to lack the sense of personhood this podcast is written and produced by miss alabama Our historians are Bob Newton and Veronica Dress. This podcast is recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studios in Joliet, Illinois. And our studio engineer is Brian McInerney. Thank you for listening.